What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy. In today's episode, I sit down with Angelica Malone. Angelica is a writer, lactation and childbirth educator. She is a birth and postpartum doula trained in reducing maternal and infant mortality with a mission to educate and inspire a global tribe of women. Angelica, thank you so much for making the time to be able to record this episode with me and have this conversation. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Cassidy. I'm so excited to be here. So I know that you have this hope to cultivate a global community of women. And from our, you know, exchanges that we've had so far, and just in reading about you, I know this really stems from your experiences, experiences growing up, your current work that you're doing. I wonder if you could share what brought you to this mission and to your work. Yeah. So, um, it's really been like this gradual journey that I didn't realize was even happening until, I don't know, like along the way I would realize it was happening. So growing up, I grew up as a third culture kid. Both of my parents were in the military. Um, so we grew up most of my life in other countries or in other non-American contexts, I should say. Um, as soon as I was born, I was born in Oceanside, California. Soon after I was born, just a couple months later, we moved to Guam. And that's where I lived for the first few years of my life. Then we moved back to the U.S. and I lived in New Orleans and a little bit in the Northeast. Um, and then in elementary school, we moved to Japan, where I lived for a few years until middle school. And I came back to the U.S. I lived in Tennessee for about a year and a half. And then we moved back overseas to Naples, Italy, where I went through high school and I graduated. Um, wow. So during those experiences, I was able just to meet lots of ty- lots of different people from lots of backgrounds and to see like my friends growing up, I had friends who were, you know, their one parent would be black American and one parent would be Japanese. Um, and there's a lot of, I have a friend who is maybe part Italian, part Filipino. And so those are my friends. And I realized they had very, like, I didn't realize at the time, but now looking back on it, they had these very complex identities. And mm. for me, the, I had my own, though I, both of my parents are black American. I did not have, I guess, what, I guess, a common black American upbringing. I didn't grow up in predominantly black communities or in the United States. Um, so then later on, I joined the military. And while in the military, I served on a ship where we would go down to the Caribbean. And we would sometimes interact with people fleeing persecution or fleeing some kind of um, terrible situation. And I saw my first pregnant woman in that context. And mm. I loved what I was doing. I was in medicine. I was a or healthcare. I was a corpsman, so it's like a mix of nursing and medical assisting. And I just wished I could do more. I d- I was able to do a lot, and I had a really um, good monumental role, I think, in that situation that happened on our ship. But I then went on to study, and I want. I thought I wanted to be an OBGYN. And while in college, I worked a part of a refugee organization that supported pregnant women. So I was a mentor to a pregnant refugee woman having a birth here in the United States, and she was a high-risk pregnant woman. And so I was able to marry some of what I had, that experience I had through the military, but also my experience of growing up as a third culture kid and recognizing what it was like to live in this third identity in this third space, you know, you might identify as one thing or your race or ethnicity might be one thing, but you live in a different other world. And 
you know, all of that comes together. And so during this time, I realized that I loved working with women. I realized I loved really working in this kind of perinatal space where women need that extra support and love. And they really want someone who can um, just help them feel supported and educated and empowered to make the decisions that they want to make. And so that was the role I had as a mentee or a mentor to my mentee. And mm. I went on after that, we moved away. I decided I didn't think I wanted to go into medicine. I realized not in the way that I wanted to serve women, could I do it in that way, or at least not um, at that time. So my family and I, we moved to Puerto Rico, and that's where I had my first daughter. And I went through the whole experience of what it would be like for most women in Puerto Rico to give birth there. I went to an OBGYN who was there. Um, I birthed in the hospital. Thankfully, we had this amazing doula that helped us navigate everything because we weren't familiar with what it was like to deliver in Puerto Rico. That was our first child. And it is different. It's very different than what it's like to deliver in an American hospital. And Mm -hmm. so through that, I went on also to deliver my second daughter in Guam, but actually at a birth center with midwives. But all of those things really kind of sprinkled ideas in my head of what I wanted to do and how I thought I could best serve and support women, especially women who have these really multifaceted identities. And so um, I began to kind of collect training. So when I was in Puerto Rico, there was not any lactation support that came to anyone's home. There was no one there that you could Mm -hmm. really just call up and ask for information or come to your house and watch you and your baby have a feeding. So that's actually where I decided like I wanted to become a lactation professional. And so I trained through UC San Diego and got my training to become a lactation educator um, and counselor. And then on Guam, I did that more and I began to teach in the community. I was serving the local women by doing home visits, but also um, military families providing education on how to prepare for their baby's birth and prepare for breastfeeding. And then when I moved back here to Seattle just about a year ago, I wanted to bring all of that together, but I also realized that I wanted to be a midwife. So I'd known for a while, you know, there's kind of these hints of wanting to become a midwife. But I think after Guam, having my second daughter with midwives, I realized that was the space I wanted to fill. There's very few Black midwives in general. And then to complex like to complicate that even more, I know that I could provide something unique by becoming a midwife because not only am I a black woman, I also have this very multi-dimensional identity because of the way that I grew up. And it's funny because now that I feel like I have the words to identify who I am, a third culture kid who grew up, you know, with these different experiences. I begin to find that there's a lot of people like that. They're like third culture kid is becoming this really common term that I hear now because so many people realize like that's me. Isn't it incredible how powerful language is? We have a word to maybe that really connects to our experience and that we can use to name our experiences and what that can really add to our identity once we have the language. And so it sounds like you've been able to, as, as you have become connected to that language yourself, you've been able to bring it to others, right, as an offering to describe their experience. Yeah, absolutely. I, the more I share about it and I write about it or the, I connect with people who identify in that same way, the more people come out of the woodwork and I realize there is a need, especially here in the States for women to have support from someone who identifies them in that way, who doesn't just think, you know, your color, the color of your skin is this way. So that means you're like this, or, you know, you come from this country, so you must be like this. And so that's what I'm hoping to provide as a midwife is not only, you know, the expertise of midwifery care, but also this connection with women that feels more personal, feels more intimate, and respects those multifaceted parts of their identity. One of the things that you and I had said we really wanted to talk about in this episode, and it's connected to this piece of um, dynamic cultural identity, Mm -hmm. is around parenting. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell me a little bit about your partner. I know that you guys met in service, correct? Yeah. So my husband, Brett, he and I have been married for almost 11 years. We met when we were both stationed actually actually on that ship I was sharing about earlier um, in Charleston, South Carolina. So I joined the Coast Guard at 17. I moved back from Italy and about a month later, I think it was a month later, a couple months later, I joined the military. I always knew that I wanted to work in healthcare, 
but I wanted experience. And I knew from my parents that the military could give you that experience. Um, They'd also be able to eventually help you pay for college. And so while I was stationed on the ship, I met my husband. It was so random. I actually did not think I was going to get married. And if I did, I thought it was going to be at a much later age. My husband and I met when I was 20 and he was 21. And we got married within like that same year. He and I come from very... Okay, so I would say that we come from very different backgrounds, but also very similar. So his dad was in the Air Force for over 20 years. I want to say almost like almost not 30 years. Yeah, almost 30 years. Uh, Both of my parents retired after more than 20 years in the military. So we had that common ground. We really understood military life and moving around and having to make friends. And I think accepting people beyond just what they might look like because in the military, the military is yeah. very diverse. It, it's predominantly white, but there are lots of people coming from different backgrounds in the military, all coming together for essentially a common goal. You know, they have a job that they have to fulfill. And so we met and we were immediately, it was funny because I saw him one day in the hallway and I just said to someone who was sitting next to me and it's very random, but I said, that's going to be my husband. I just, wow. for some reason I said it and it was true. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you were saying that you both come from similar but different backgrounds. So the similarity, you both had this understanding of being military children. How is your backgrounds different? So he had grown up in these different areas, but primarily in the South of the United States and his family, his mom's side of the family is all from the South. Um, And so that makes us very different. If I were to ever identify with being from anywhere in the U.S., it would be like Philadelphia, New York, that area. That's always where my my mom's family or um, they all lived. So, yeah, I think we connected on the military experience, but we're very different in that. So very traditional Southern. He is white. I am black. I grew up living overseas for much of my military child experience, and he lived all the time in the United States, in the South, in Alabama, in North Carolina, Texas. Um, and when we first got together, we meshed really well. But when we started to talk about specifics of like living, I knew I always wanted to live overseas again. I knew I wanted to work in um, in a global context somehow. That was a time where I was still trying to figure out if I wanted to be a doctor or a nurse or whatever it was. But I knew that no matter what, whatever my specialty was, I wanted to work in a humanitarian setting. And so we would talk about this constantly. And I think he kind of was like, okay, yeah, you know, whatever. But when we would talk about specifics, it's funny because I would say things like, you know, in Europe, most people don't have pickup trucks and things like that. And he was like, what? Everybody where I come from has pickup trucks. And I said, you know, and and I was... I, and I said, you know, would you live somewhere where you couldn't have like a truck? And at first he was like, uh, no, why would you do that? Like, why do people, I said, well, most people have little cars in Europe because the streets are little. And, oh, it was funny because there would be little things like that, that we'd talk about. And I couldn't understand how that was so much a part of his identity. And for me, it was such a almost ridiculous thing. Um, but I feel like there have been these amazing things that happened along the way that allowed him to have a more global context where that kind of stuff to him is nothing anymore. Like he laughs at that and cannot even believe that that's kind of where he used to be because now we both really value global citizenship for our children. And um, he, uh, he totally respects the fact that I want to live overseas again and want to somehow serve in this kind of humanitarian context. And he, at any turn, there was a time where, I was going to possibly go to Iraq and work and do lactation stuff and help set up a clinic. And he was immediately all for it, trying to figure out how we could do it. Um, so it's, it's just, it's been a really big change. And I think it was a big part of that was because we moved to Puerto Rico and we lived out in the community. And for him, that was his first real global experience, not living in the mainland U S and I think he fell in love. He fell in love with the idea that you could have a different way of living and that there are other people that do things in a different way that can really be amazing. And just because it's American doesn't mean it's great. There can be really wonderful things that come from other cultures and the food can be really delicious in other places. And um, there, there's just a really richness to having a, a global perspective on life. And so, yeah, he's changed a lot since then. 
So this value of developing a global perspective and global citizenship is something that you both maybe came from different places oh, yeah. and different experiences, but together as parents and now cultivating Absolutely. your own family yeah. values, that's something that you both share now as like a common, like as a family value of, you know, giving your children the experience of seeing themselves as global citizens. What kind of conversations did you and your husband have before having kids about how you were going to parent and talk to your children about things like cultural identity and race? Okay. So before when we first got married, I knew like one of the things that I reasoned I didn't want to get married was because I saw the bad aspects of my mom's and my parents' relationship. And I knew I didn't want anything like that. So but but I also began to realize like we were coming like we were coming into marriage right at the time where like social media, MySpace and stuff was coming about. I remember realizing some of the things that were wrong in my mom's marriage, but also realizing some of the things that could be wrong in a modern marriage, which I really attributed to social media and I was attributed to this just oversharing of everything in your life where the marriage is not sacred. Mm-hmm. And I really felt like when we got married, it was he and I against the world. And so that was really where we came from in the beginning of our marriage is like, how can we create a sacred space within our relationship so that other people feel like it's impermeable? And so that was always Mm -hmm. where all of our decision-making came from. So my husband's not on social media. He still doesn't have anything. Um, And I have it primarily just for work and advertising what I do. but we've always been really conscious of figuring out how we can almost make decisions in our own little bubble. Obviously, we have to reflect them on our community and how that will actually come about. But we literally move every two to three years, just he and I. No one else comes with us. And there were times when we would live in a location and didn't see any of our family or close friends for two or three years. So when it came to having children, it was almost that same kind of thing. What do we think is best? What is it that fits best with our values, with our um, our faith? And then make decisions from there and figure out how we can navigate that in the outer world, as opposed to what's happening all around us, which for us changes a lot, but it changes for everyone really. But it, it significantly changes for us because we literally will move locations and sometimes move continents. Um, we would think like, what is the best decision for us? And what is it that we value? And then how can we figure out how to make that happen? Sometimes I have these fantasies of, you know, escaping <laughs> the like the con- the constant messages that are just everywhere. And, and it, honestly, it terrifies me sometimes as a mother to two young children that are growing up in this era where it's just like social media and access to information, which also, which is beautiful, but also gives us access to yeah. everybody else's ideas of everything. There's, there's so much noise. And I have these like fantasies sometimes of like, how can we just escape all of this? Um, and yeah, so it sounds like the way the, the 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 way in which the two of you have created this life for your family allows. It sounds like there's there's you've created you've really been really intentional about boundaries boundaries of what information is coming in and how we're going to be really solid in what our beliefs are and what our values are, and then we will, and then once we have that strong foundation, then we will open ourselves up to mm-hmm. what is around us more. Um, and then we're going into it with that strong foundation of yeah, our family values. That's that's absolutely it. And my husband and I are both very conscious of what's going on in the outside world, but we just make a conscious right. effort of not allowing that to really dictate the way that we make decisions. And it's not easy. It's it's very difficult. And I will say, moving back here to Seattle to the mainland U.S. last year after living overseas for six years, which is where I birthed my daughters and I became a mother. And learned all of what I learned about being a mother, truly, like my own mother, my own mothering style, I should say, it was extremely traumatizing. And it's still something I really struggle with today. Because when I lived on Guam, and I lived in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, especially, I lived out in the Puerto Rican community. So I was, I was not a part of their social pressures but I also was not a part of the American social pressures. I had my, I could truly form my own Mm -hmm. identity. 
And then when we moved to Guam, we ended up moving onto a military base. And that was kind of like my ease into Americanism because I was surrounded by other women who were Americans and had come over here to, to Guam to live. And I began to see the struggles and it terrified me because I realized though there is a lot of camaraderie in mothering in lots of contexts around the world, the way that we do it in American mothering is almost like we bond over the misery. And so when I was when I was in Puerto Rico, yes. they don't do that. They just did not. And even the local women on Guam, they don't really do that. There is this there is this contentment with just the way that mothering is. It is difficult. There are different there are difficulties that happen. Mm-hmm. Children have you know, physical issues, educational problems and barriers, but we deal with them. But then, you know, I still might like going out with my girlfriends and I still love spending time with my partner. And, you know, I still love to be attractive. There was in both of those cultures, those were all respected. Those many facets of a woman's being were still respected. And I don't know why that was, but when I came then to the States, I saw what I saw on that American base on Guam even more profound. And it was almost like this vortex that I felt like I was being sucked into where it was not really looked, it was almost frowned upon when you enjoyed things too much. Like, why are you going off on a vacation by yourself? Mm. You know, don't, aren't you afraid of leaving your children with your husband? Or, you know, is he capable of doing it the way that you do it? Or just little things that I felt were kind of like little scratches at my identity that, I didn't feel overseas. I'm really resonating with your with with what you're describing of like it's almost like a glorifying of how hard yeah. motherhood is and the more tired and stressed you are then it's almost like a status yeah. symbol or something. That that's exactly what I mean. And the thing I realized that I think I think what kind of hurt me the most was when I was in Puerto Rico and Guam, I was meeting mothers who really were struggling to put food on the table at times, did not have super cute booty boots and, you know, the newest Birkenstocks and, you know, cute Levi jeans. They didn't have all these wonderful things, um, which, you know, in my context of mothering, we had, which are wonderful. You know, I love to dress cute and I love all those things. But women who had way less of the extras of mothering and extras of life that actually, you know, the adornments they were loving motherhood much more and loving their lives much more than I see sometimes here in the U.S. where the women have all those wonderful extras, you know, who, I don't know. And I also feel like there's a guilt around asking for help in America. And in Puerto Rico and Guam, it's like, girlfriend, why aren't you letting me hold your baby? Why aren't you letting me, you know, do something for you, get your food for you? And here in the States, you know, it's almost like, like if you want to have someone hold your baby so you can tie your shoe or take care of your toddler, you you almost have to ask permission. Like, I'm so sorry. Do you mind holding my baby? Right. And There's an apology all, first. There's an apology first yeah. before we ask for the help. Yeah. Yeah. And really, I identify. Like, when I see a mom struggling in the girl, grocery store, I'm like, girl, I get it. Do not worry. I am not judging you. Because I understand, like, that could be me tomorrow. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it will be. It will be me tomorrow. It could be me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So is part of your mission in the work that you're doing and the writing that you're doing, is it to deconstruct and unpack some of these things and to invite conversation and dialogue around around this piece that exhaustion and doing it all alone as a status symbol is not something that we actually that we're actually killing ourselves in doing that? Yeah. 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 So in the, in the perinatal space, as I'm sort of supporting families, like in prenatal education, I try and drop those little bits of information and those graces in there. Yeah. Um, I haven't done much writing about it because honestly, I find it so overwhelming. I don't even know where to start because I never want it to come off as judgmental because I understand it's very hard to live differently when everyone around you is living a certain way. So I don't at all judge like a, a woman who you know, it's having that experience of what I just explained. Mm. So yeah, I try and do it in a way where I'm spending lots of time with the family. So then it doesn't just come off as like, let me tell you about my idea or my philosophy. It's really a gradual process of where we can, I can share it in the context of talking about, you know, preparing for the birth Mm -hmm. or how to ask for help as soon as 
the baby's born and you're, you know, you're transitioning back home. But I would, I would love to figure out a way to write about it. Um, I really, I can resonate with this as well. As a therapist, there are, there are a lot of things that I see. I, I almost see it as like, it's like the smog we breathe in, right? It's like, we're breathing it in all these discourses and these messages. And it's like, it's hard to even really see it, but you're breathing it in and it's affecting you. And I would love to, and I think the podcast is another way of me trying to na- like step into this conversation of how can we, how can we name some of these these larger issues or these things that sometimes feel like invisible, but they're there. But I find that in my work, it's so much easier to, to do that, to to have those conversations in the intimacy that comes with just sitting with, with sitting with somebody, right. And really understanding their context and their experiences. And then together exploring the impact of the smog, you know, Um, if I could go with that metaphor, but yes. uh, So Absolutely. I'm. Oh my gosh. So we were we were going to talk about parenting, but like all this is so relevant because impacts are children, right? Like our children are growing up, breathing in all of this and living in this space. You know, for myself, my kids are going to grow up on mainland USA, and you know, I'm I'm just. I, I was I would love to explore with you a little bit about how are you hoping to engage both with your partner, right? Um, you as a black woman, him as a white man. How are the two of you hoping to engage with your children on conversations around things like race and gender? So um, around conversations around race, one, I hope to be an example. I think that was one of the most important things for me growing up Yeah, is seeing that there were these different ways of being. I don't think I noticed it as much until I got older when I was living overseas a bit and where I gave birth to my girls, where I realized... Um, there are a lot of things people will say about who you are because of the color of your skin, because mm-hmm. that's really what race is. It's purely the color of your skin. Yep. Now, your ethnicity, your nationality, they might have a bit more to do with your true identity. Um, and so I want to instill in my girls an idea of you create that. You, you allow the messages to come in, and you can say no. Mm-hmm. You can say that that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like it was funny when my girls were very, one of my oldest daughter was very small. Um, She still really didn't have any features that would tell you whether or not she looks more black or more white. And someone was like, oh, well, her hair is going to be super curly because all biracial kids have super curly hair. Well, my girls have very fair, almost blonde hair and it's not super curly. And so just to say like, the reason I say that is because there are a lot of things that people might think about you because of the color of your skin. I get so many preconceived ideas of think, I think what people think of me before they meet me or before I open my mouth, depending upon what I'm wearing or, you know, whether or not I'm with my husband or I'm with my kids. And so the conversations, I don't really feel like I have as much overt conversations. I do talk to them about racism. I do talk to them about the fact that people sometimes don't like someone purely because of the color of their skin or that there was a time here in the U.S. where mama and papa could not be together. They did not like if two people with different color skin were together or they didn't want someone with my color skin to drink the same water from the place that someone with Papa's color skin would drink. And so they've heard it. And of course that makes them very sad. And I think it terrifies them a little bit, but um, I explained to them, you know, those are not good things. And I explained to them that there are some people who are not nice people out there. There are people who do those kind of things. Um, Still, it's not just something that happened in the past, but I also know as a black woman who's lived in different contexts, I have the opportunity anytime I show up in a room to change someone's mind. Mm. Now, obviously people have their biases that they're going to hold on to and really bigotry doesn't make sense. So sometimes it doesn't matter how you present yourself. People will hold on to what on what they want to hold on to. But I do know that I have the ability to change someone's mind or to give them a new perspective on what they think about a black person or a black woman or someone who wears a head wrap or someone who wears whatever it might be. 
And so I teach that to my girls and that's what I want. Like you create your identity and then you are allowed to then, or you create, excuse me, the way that you live out your identity. And then you can influence the way that people view you or other people that they may assume are like you. What I hear in that is instilling agency with your children, a sense of there are things that you, that you here have control over. And I know for my, for myself as a parent, you know, when I've talked to my daughter, my son is now getting to an age where, where these questions are coming up. But for her, I've had longer to have these conversations with her, her being older around race, ethnicity, and cultural identity. So my children are half Portuguese from my husband's side, and I'm half Mexican and half Irish. And so they're, they're a mix, but they, they look white, right? And so mm-hmm. in or, her and I have had some pretty frank conversations around reading about some of the U.S. history. I remember she had questions to me. And of just saying like, you know, like almost like I don't want to be white because I don't want this to be a part of my identity and my history, right, as a white person. Um, but what I ta- what I what we talked about then was, you know, yes, you were born white and so you have white privilege, but you were also born with a brain and you were born with a heart and you have a brain and a heart that will allow you to make choices in how you interact around these things. And, um, and we talk about activism and what an activist is. Um, and the hope is, is, you know, as a parent, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to offer her is both an acknowledgement and recognition of, of, of her privilege, right. Um, and to be able to talk directly about it, but also give her the agency of seeing, what it is that she can do around that um, and what it is, what activism could look like for her. I think my husband, being a white man who has a Southern family with a lot of the history and a lot of the tendencies that some would assume about people from the South, there is that there. That's obviously not him. And he grew up, um, for one, playing sports in the U.S. where he interacted a lot with Black Americans. And so he did not come with a lot of those prejudices because he was like, look, I'd met black people and they were not like what people say. They were not ignorant. They weren't, you know, any of these things. And he's always been attracted to black women. And so I think he does struggle as well with identifying with the negative parts of being a, what the negative context coming with being a white male, because he doesn't identify with yeah. any of those things. Um, and I think he struggles a lot also when he meets black people who, don't know that he's married to a white person or don't know that he's married to a black woman. They assume that he could be what they've experienced in a negative way. And so I think for him, that is something he's constantly working out is like, how do I understand that there are people who, even in my own family, who still mistreat Mm. black people, but that is not me. And so I think for him, it's a, I think we also by inviting our home is pretty multicultural, like the people that come into our home. And so I think that that plays a very important role, not just sharing, you know, these, you know, sharing ideologies, but also embracing those ideologies and making them a part of your actual Mm -hmm. life. Um, I meet lots of people who are like, you know, we talk to our children about this or we don't talk about it because we're hoping that, you know, then we won't sway them either way. But I think the one of the most important things is really forming intimate relationships and bonds with people of different race and ethnicities. And that's really where the children learn that people are okay and that we're all on the inside the same, though we have different belief systems and we have different cultures and different smells and we eat different types of food. I think when you really begin to live in community with different types of people, that's where children really be really resonate. You're so right. And I think, you know, it's a lot of research indicates that children, even from a very young age, because it's just the way that our brains are hardwired, we're hardwired to putting like with like, right? Like, so we, we're constantly mm-hmm. categorizing in our, in our brains of what feels similar, what feels different, um, who is different, who is similar. And so it sounds like in your family, yeah there are intentional efforts in 
in in showing your children um, that having diverse experiences, diverse relationships, and having a multicultural home in that way. Um, so so really living it and showing by example, right, and exposing them. to experiences that are going to shift the way in which they understand themselves in the context of the world, how somebody can seem very different and your brain may automatically say, this person is different from me. But then when you lean in, when you lean in to this person, how you can begin to see yourself in them. Exactly. I think that's actually where a lot of racism and bigotry comes from is when you cannot see yourself in the other person. And that's, that's why like when 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 people say white privilege to me what that means is when a white person can identify themselves as another white person and so then they immediately accept them and whatever it may be. in business it might be we trust you to do a business deal yep. you know in line it might be you know i let you go ahead of me whatever it may be it's because you see yourself in them or say a man to a white man to a white woman you see your daughter or you see your wife in them the problem that we have, I think, with racism all the time or prejudice is when you cannot. And it's, it's, and that's why community and relationships, I think, fixes a lot of that. Because once you begin to do life with them, you realize like, oh, she likes the same things that I like, or she had a mom very similar to my mom, or she, you know, whatever it may be, you begin to see yourself in them. And when you can see yourself in someone else, it's hard to hate them. It's hard to mistreat them. Mm, Brene Brown has a chapter in her most recent book, Braving the Wilderness. People are hard to hate close up, so lean in, move in. There's a conversation that I've had with other with with clients and other parents, you know, when we when race does come up, where they'll say, "Well, I just I want my children to be colorblind. I, I don't want them to see, you know, the c- color of the of your skin, right? Because, like you said, race is color of your skin, and there's I don't want them to see that, so I want them to be colorblind." I um yeah. I have some thoughts on that, but I'm curious to hear hear yours. Yeah, that's a very good question. So I have a really amazing friend. Her name is Lucretia Berry, and she wrote a book called "What Le- What Lies Between Us," and it's about race and talking to your kids about race and that kind of thing. And one of the biggest things she she speaks about is you know, please don't teach your children to be colorblind. Um, and it's true. It's because race is important because it does affect. It may not affect you when you don't identify so much by your race or you don't feel as though other people immediately identify you based on your race. But for a black person, a brown person, um, you know how often you are judged by your race. And so to then approach someone and try and say that you understand them or you connect with them because you don't see their skin is almost dismissive. And so I think, again, with relationship, you begin to realize like, how do I let someone know that I see you? I see that you do have different color skin than I do, but I don't want to judge you based on that, you know? Mm. And so I think really I, it brings back this idea of community and connection because when you begin to, is the other thing is like, I think sometimes someone will think, well, I have a black friend and I, this is like such an old cliche is someone just like, you know, I'm not racist. I have a black friend, but it's still something that comes up because I do think that people, when you have one friend who is of a certain, you know, race, you begin to think like, well, everyone must be like that. Like we get along. We're all like, you know, that person's like this. Obviously I don't have any hate in my heart because I like this person. Well, in that context, usually you found a friend who more so identifies with your culture than you found someone who you're identifying with their culture. So when you begin to make multiple friendships with people of color is when you really get a more well-rounded view of what it means to be a person of color or be a black person in the United States and then I think it's a more authentic, more authentic expression of the intention in your heart, which is to be accepting or to be inclusive. Right. Because you're not just getting the single story and the single narrative and potentially the single story or single narrative that you feel mo- that you're just comfortable with because it feels mm-hmm. more known right, or more familiar. Um, so in expanding your network within community, you are inviting in multiple stories, multiple narr- narratives. Exactly. Um, one of the things, one of the things that I found, you know, is because I think I, I toyed with the idea of like, okay, well is, you know, do I want my children to be mm-hmm. colorblind? And what I, what I find in that space is all of a sudden it, it stops conversation and it stops questions. So then it sort of, it gets in the way of 
important dialogue and questions for my children to ask. Um, Beverly Daniel Tatum, she wrote the book, um, Why Are All the Black mm-hmm. Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? She she's the one that uh, that I got this idea of like the smog that we breathe in, right? This sort of the thing that like we can't see it, but we're breathing it in all the time mm-hmm. and it's always there. Um, she has this quote from her book, children who have been silenced often enough learn not to talk mm-hmm. about race publicly. Their questions don't go away. They just go unasked. And if if I, if I, the, the danger of saying, well, I just want, I want to teach my children to be colorblind and to not see it is that then when they do have questions and when they do see things that don't feel right or things that they're confused by or things that they're curious about, then they won't ask because what they learn yeah. is I'm not supposed to see it. Yeah. And so I'm not supposed to very ask true. about it. Yeah. That's, that's completely true. It's, it's very so dangerous. dangerous. Yeah. Um, because in the home is where it, your child's supposed to feel most comfortable to explore and to understand and to find, you know, solutions to life or begin to make inferences about life. And so it's important that there is dialogue. Um, I, I think again, like the more that the family is beginning to be a part of these relationships with diverse people, it's almost impossible not to have conversations about it. You know, it's, I think it's, it's much easier for that to happen when the community around you is very homogenous, then it, it, there's never, there's like, I have had friends, kids ask, ask me about my hair and that's because I'm in their world. And so even if the parents wouldn't answer that question or don't know how to answer the question, I am there and I understand the the child has no malice in their heart. And so I can take the time to share something with them. Yes. Yeah. Just, just this past week, uh, we have a, a friend who is in a wheelchair and her daughter, my daughter do dance with each other. And my, my daughter asked her, mm-hmm. how do you go swimming? Can you go swimming? And I think there was like this immediate yeah. feeling in me, like, oh my gosh, don't ask, like <laughs> awkward, uncomfortable, uh, make, you know, but then but then I breathe because that's that's my issue, right? Like that's like that's my issue, and so I took a breath and and didn't you know shame her for asking the question. And you know, fortunately, my her little her friend's mom you know looked at her and responded and answered every question yeah. that she had about this and answered questions how she became in the wheelchair and um and then my daughter had follow up questions after that and it really invited this really rich dialogue and conversation with my daughter that would never have happened if i wanted her to just be blind to this or to or to make or to say we don't yeah. ask we don't ask questions like that you know or we shouldn't ask questions and i don't know i just i find that when when I when I find myself feeling uncomfortable because kids, you know, they kids will. will ask the darndest things, you know, you know, and, and but if if I'm uncomfortable with it, like that's my thing. That's my thing that I have to like name it, breathe, be mindful of like, okay, what is this thing that just made me feel like I wanted to avoid that or I wanted to shut it down or I was uncomfortable, right? Um, I have to name that, and that's something I need to work on myself and be able. to you know, but, but just to breathe and be mindful and then to invite the questions, invite the dialogue, because if I, if I stop it, then there's no growth, right? There's, there's no growth that can happen there. And there's so much that I can learn because the beautiful thing about having a child is like, she is the most non-judgmental person to talk yeah. about things like race and disability and sexuality and spirituality with. Like, if I don't know something, <laughs> I, I'm not going to be embarrassed to tell her, you know what? I don't know. She was asking, um, around Thanksgiving, um, you know, in her class, they were having conversations about the complex, you know, history yeah. that we have with Native Americans and, and who were here long before we were. And she had questions I didn't know the answers to. And I think in maybe any other context, I would have been embarrassed. I would have just stopped the conversation so that, some, so that somebody wouldn't know that I don't know the answers. But with her, she's the most non-judgmental person for me to say, you know, I don't know, but I want to know more. And I'm so glad that you're curious yeah. about this. I am too. Let's find out together. Let's 
let's at, let's go and find somebody that we can talk to and we can ask these questions to. And I don't know. It's just I think if we if we stop the conversation, if we, if we pretend to be blind to it, we want our kids to be blind to it, then it stops Very really true. beautiful dialogue and growth agree. on both parts. So do you, Angelica, do you have any favorite resources for parenting within a multiracial family or just, I mean, we've, we've talked about, that, that was a question that I had posed to you in that paper, that, that document I sent you, all the questions, but we talked about so much more beyond that. So I'm like, how do I ask this? And we talked about so much, but I just, I, I guess, I guess my question to you is, do you have any resources for any of the things we've been talking about around, um, I don't know, parenting mm. around um, being a woman and being a mother within the context of all these things. It's a big question, I know, but we talked about so much. <laughs> okay, I, I have a few things in my head I'm going to try and get out there and make sure that um, I share. So as far as race and talking to race, talking about race with your children and also in your family and hopefully even with your friends, um, there's something called brownicity.com and that's through my friend Lucretia Berry and mm. she has a PhD actually in this topic and so she's very well equipped at how to navigate this and she really travels around the country sharing with groups how they can have these conversations so that's a really good place to start and she has a book I think she has a couple books actually that are really great for helping have these dialogues within the family there's also another one for groups, it's intentionally for groups who want to do this, um, called BeABridgeBuilder.com. Mm. And there's a book called, or there's a resource guide called The Bridge to Racial Unity. And it's a discussion guide. Uh, and both of those have really wonderful Facebook groups I know of. I, I'm not a part of them, or I may be a part of it, but I've never actually been a part of the discussions. But I've heard really wonderful things about both of their Facebook groups. And um, it's very integrated with lots of different people sharing but also there's a period of time where those going in um, I think it's primarily when white people go into the conversation to have a moment of not talking for a bit so that they can hear the dialogue that's happening yes. learn and then come into the conversation so that um, they're not coming into the conversation with you know tons of questions that have already been answered um, but they're also able to learn as they're hearing the current conversations that are happening. No, I love that you just brought that up because I, I've had my own personal experiences um, where when we're talking about privilege, race, oppression, and I find that either two things can often show up. Either, either I feel uncomfortable and so I'm silent about things, but silence in its silence isn't neutral, right? Like I need to engage in the dialogue or what can happen is I'll take up all the space almost like to convince myself and the people around me that I am, you know, not prejudiced, right? Yeah. And, but then in that, but that can, and then I remember I had a distinct experience where in that safe circle, when this was happening, somebody named that, you know, this is something mm -hmm. that can actually happen where, the person, the, the white, per the white person in the group, myself, takes up a lot of space, and then we don't get to have the, a rich dialogue. And when that was named, I really had to practice the reflexivity of what was actually happening in that moment, and how often that actually does happen. So, so I can really appreciate what you just said. Of you know, um, when white, when white people are invited into the space. There's also this expectation of, there's also this hope of creating space where they can also listen. I never thought of it in that way. I never heard anyone express mm -hmm. it in that way that sometimes they can come to the space and you don't know what to say. But then I do know the idea of seeing a white person in the space and thinking, you know, say something or have an idea and, you know, maybe you don't know what to say or you don't want to offend anyone or, you know, it's just very, it's not, it's not black and white. It can be very complex. And so, okay, so I have a couple more resources um, I yeah. thought of. Yeah. Um, there's one called Multicultural Kid Blogs. And so that's a really great place, not just to learn about race. They do a really wonderful job, though, of talking about race and honoring Black History Month and the different um, ethnicities that have respective months within our year, or at least the American calendar year, and are honored throughout the year. But they also share a lot about different cultures. So Diwali and... Um, and all of these different things so that you can then have conversations with your children about it, maybe even do activities around it. Um, but they do a really wonderful job. And the people contributing are extremely diverse. They live all around the world. 
um, the people who are providing, say, resources on Diwali celebrate Diwali. It's not, you know, someone like me trying to share about Diwali. Um, if they had something about, I don't know, celebrating Three Kings Day in Puerto Rico, they most likely have resources from a Puerto Rican person sharing about celebrating Three Kings in Puerto Rico. But that's a really wonderful resource for just uh, cultivating global citizenship in your family. Yeah. Then there's this final thing that I just heard about recently or about a month ago or a couple months ago, actually. Um, it's called The Educated Birth. I started following them on Instagram, but they started creating a, they created a magazine showcasing birth for Black women and Black families um, called Everyday Birth. And it's a magazine, actually, that's going to come out sharing just from a person of color's perspective birth and how to prepare. And I just think it's really wonderful because you don't see a lot of resources out there celebrating um, birth from a black person's perspective and in a beautiful dynamic way that I think feels fresh and modern. And so they're just doing a really wonderful job. And I think that's great. Oh, thank you so much for sharing these resources. What I'll do is I'll email you and I'll have you maybe send me uh, these links so I can add them into the podcast notes. So that way people just have easy access to those resources. So lastly, where can people find you? Okay, so I'm on Instagram at Angelica Malone. It's just my name, and it's Angelica with a J. And then I also have my website, which is AngelicaMalone.com. And I do a lot of interviews on there of women sharing their stories about their backgrounds, what they're doing, something amazing, because there's so many amazing women out there. And that's what I call the tribe, the global tribe. I'd like to one day have an in-person event where all these women come. Oh, but on my website. Magic. <laughs> yeah, it would be. It would be so amazing. Um, so, yeah, you can find that on the website. I also have, like, teas. I do herbal teas that I blend that just are really nourishing for the womb and promote restful sleep. I'll send you. Actually, I'm going to send you one. I realize I want to send you one. Um, uh, but yeah. yeah, girl, I'll take a herb, I'll take a comforting herbal tea that's going to like, yeah. oh, amazing. You are, the work that you're doing is amazing. This conversation, I just, I, I'm so grateful to you and opening your heart up to doing this conversation, having this conversation with me. Um, and you're just an amazing resource. And I am so grateful to you for all the work you're Thank doing you. and for making the time. Yeah, Cassie, thank you for having this space. Really, holding space is the, the perfect name for this podcast because that's exactly what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you, Angelica. You've been listening to Holding Space Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information that was shared in this episode. If you did, you might want to subscribe and be the first to hear about future episodes as soon as they air. Thank you so much for sharing this space with me. Have a great day. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.